0: If you were to look at the Gospel of Luke, in particular Luke chapter 24, there's a story there of uh, two disciples who are walking along, commonly referred to as the road to a mess, and Jesus comes along beside these disciples and walks with them and instructs them, and they don't know who He is, and and, I won't go into all the details as to why they don't know who He is, but at some point in time... After he's been instructing them, he, their eyes are opened and they realize that it's Jesus. You're, you're familiar with that story. They, they hang out with Jesus for a little while. They break bread. They have a meal. And Jesus departs from them. And then these two disciples, they have the story, right? They have the risen Jesus. They have seen him. They have talked to him. And they make their way seven miles on foot back to Jerusalem to the other disciples there. And the famous words that they proclaim to them there are this. The Lord has risen indeed. Indeed is a word you and I in the South, we don't use a lot. Uh, That means absolutely, with certainty, without doubt, Jesus has risen. The message of Easter is what, church? That Jesus has risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. you take away the resurrection, you lose Christianity. It stands as the pinnacle of our faith. Without the resurrection, we are still dead in our sins. We have no hope. All is lost without the resurrection. The resurrection is critical. It's important. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without that one historical event happening in the world... We are without hope. There is no hope for us at all. Yaroslav Pelican. That's a mouthful, right? Mr. Pelican was a Christian theology professor at Yale University. Yes, I said Yale University. He puts the resurrection perspective when he says this. Now keep in mind, he's a professor at Yale University. You're thinking, there's not much Christian going on at Yale University, right? But here's what Mr. Pelican has to say about the resurrection. He's a Christian, by the way. If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Think about that statement. If Jesus rose from the dead, then nothing else matters in comparison to that. Jesus rose from the dead, therefore, there is nothing that can compare to the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, that would be a truth that you could build your whole life upon. We're always looking for things that we can absolutely give ourselves to. We can give our lives to. And the resurrection is one of those things. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then go ahead and live however you want to live. Because in the end, there's nothing more than this life. If there is no resurrection, you just go do whatever you want to do. Because this is all there is, if there's no resurrection. When we think of Easter, there's a lot of things come to mind, right? How many of you have ever played the word association game? Ever played that? I don't do this very often, but because it's early, and some of you are still kind of comatose. I'm going to help you get awake this morning. The word association game, you know, I say a word and you say whatever comes to mind it's in association with that word right that's the word association game so if i say easter what comes to mind resurrection, resurrection. sunrise service allergies tie on a new dress today, Easter, we got to have something new, right? Egg hunts, pastels, is chocolate, I, chocolate bunnies, I, I wondered when that was going to come. Uh, dinner with family and friends, uh, Christmas cream donuts, sausage and biscuits, that's what we're having afterwards. So Some of you are like, yeah, that's what I associate with this day. I'm going to get a Krispy Kreme and a Sausage and Biscuit. But there's something we kind of left out. There's a lot of things we could have said there, but there's something we left out. We didn't connect, we didn't connect God's judgment for sin to Easter Sunday. And you may be thinking, that's just great, Pastor. You know, I came looking for something to lift me up, and you bring up this subject of judgment. That's not what I had in mind for this day. Most of us didn't wake up today thinking that, did we? No, that was the furthest thing from our mind. It would never occur to us to connect Sunday with God's judgment for sin. There's a reason why we don't do that. They just don't seem to go together, do they? That's the furthest thing from our mind. But that's exactly what Paul was doing here in the verses that we read earlier. Now, Luke wrote Acts. Okay? But Paul is talking here. He's writing the account of the Apostle Paul. And we read these verses earlier. And I won't go through them again for the sake of time. But here's the point that Paul is making. If you look at your handout, you see that there's a main idea that's going on in this passage this morning. Because the resurrection is true, then judgment for sin is certain. If judgment is certain, then repentance is necessary. Let me read it again. Because the resurrection is true, then judgment for sin is certain. If judgment for sin is certain, then repentance is necessary. Now, the resurrection is an absolute truth. Now, we live in a day and time where people say there is no such thing as absolute truth. I, I realize that. But the resurrection is an absolute truth truth. And how could I say that? I want to establish just for a few minutes here the truth of the resurrection. What are some proofs that we have the resurrection is true? Well, the tomb is empty, right? Uh, if the tomb had not been empty when the disciples started preaching about the resurrection, don't you think someone would have went and said, well, hey, the body's here. Y'all just kind of overlooked it. So the tomb was empty. So that's one of the ways that we can, we can uh, see that the, the resurrection is true. How about Jesus appeared to many witnesses after he rose from the dead? We read the accounts in scripture, there were numerous appearances of Jesus to many of his followers in a variety of situations between the resurrection and when he ascended into heaven. So he bodily, physically appeared to many people. Thirdly, the one that always seems to catch my attention is the changed lives of the witnesses. All the disciples and the people who witnessed Jesus' physical resurrection, they were changed, were they not? Something happened. That they became bold. They were proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel everywhere. And here's what I want you to understand. You don't go proclaiming something that's not true knowing that you're going to lose your life over that. You will not proclaim something unless you know it's an absolute truth. If you know you're going to lose your life on that. Some of you may be thinking, well, if the evidence is so convincing, why why don't more people believe it? That's That's a thought we have, right? If it's so convincing, if the truth is there, if the evidence is there, why don't more people believe it? I think the answer is people refuse to believe in the resurrection because of the moral implications it brings. If Jesus is risen, He is Lord. If He is Lord, then you have no right to continue rebelling against Him and running your own life. The main issue with unbelief is never what's between our ears. It's always moral. If Jesus is risen, then you must turn from your sin because He's going to judge the world one day. That's what Paul's telling us here. Let's look at this, verse 30. Notice on your handout there, it says, the resurrection requires that everyone repent. The resurrection, verse 30, requires that everyone repent repent. Notice it says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice it says there Paul says that God overlooked. Overlooked has the idea of what? Ignoring something. And what did God overlook and what did he ignore? Times of ignorance. Ignorance means to have a lack of knowledge. Everybody understand what what that word means? I grew up most of my life thinking there was something wrong with me. Because my dad said, you're just ignorant. There's something wrong with me. Hopefully, I'll snap by that one day. Ignorant ignorant will go away. And I won't have. I thought it was some kind of sickness. You're ignorant here. But I learned. I, I didn't have knowledge about certain things. And I was relieved that it wasn't something I would care for the rest of my life. But there's ignorance. And there's times here it says God overlooked ignorance. There were times when there was a lack of knowledge and God overlooked that. one time, God overlooked ignorance. Notice that after the phrase the times of ignorance got overlooked, we see a very important word. What is it? But. But God. God overlooked ignorance at one time, but that's not the case any longer, right? There was a time when he overlooked it, but that time is coming gone. He is not going to overlook ignorance anymore. Ignorance is no excuse for not responding to God. God says there's no excuse. Ignorance not knowing is not an excuse. And what comes to mind for most of us when we talk about people hearing the gospel is, "What about that guy on that remote island somewhere that's never heard the gospel? If he dies in his sins, does he still spend eternity in hell?" Yes, there are no exceptions in the Bible when it comes to that. That's why it's so important for us to get the gospel what to the ends of the earth that everybody can hear the good news. Ignorance, there's no excuse. It says here, but what is the response? What's the response? Notice what it says, but now He, God, commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice that God commands. When you get a command, you have no options, right? You have no choices. This is not a helpful hint that Paul is giving here. It's not like, if you think this is a good idea, then you should do this. God commands. Notice what it says. Good people in this world. Jesus said there's only one who is good, and that is who? God. So therefore, there are no good people. It includes uh, decent people who attend church. None of us are exempt from the judgment to repent. The word repent, it's a good idea to understand what that means. It means to you change your mind. It doesn't mean uh, just Intellectually that I changed my mind. The Bible's clear that repentance is more than just an intellectual thing. It means to turn to God from your sin. That's what it means. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to turn to God. It's a total change of direction. God says, do what? Repent. He commands a total change of your direction. There was a time in ignorance. I overlooked that, but no more. That time has come and gone. I'm commanding everywhere, everyone, everywhere, to repent. To repent means that we turn from self and sin and we turn to God. Instead of looking at our own efforts as a means of good standing with God, we, we turn from what we think is good to God's provision for our sin. And that provision is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Instead of looking at, again, our efforts as a means of good standing with God, that's what we like to do a lot of times. We turn from our work to God's provision. We turn from our sin, and we turn our lives toward pleasing God. We repent. We we turn from sin, and we we turn to Christ, which leads me to another point. To repent also implies faith. In order to turn to God for sins, you must believe that what He says is true. I'm going to turn from my sin. I, I acknowledge that I've sinned, and that Jesus died for my sins. I will trust in that. I will put my faith in it. See, repentance and faith are two sides of a coin. When one happens, the other happens. You repent. You turn from sin. You turn from your good works, what you think will get you reconciled to God because of your sin. You turn from that and you turn to what God says is His provision for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's Jesus, His death, His resurrection, His perfect life that He lived in your place. And here's what I want to say. If you actually believe that your life will look radically different, right? There will be something that happens in your life. You'll not hold on to your sin with one hand and try to reach out to God for His salvation with the other. See, that's not the way it works. We, sinful human beings, we want to hold on to what we want and then we want to reach out and grab God with the other hand. That's not the way it works. And God's calling people where? Everywhere. All people to turn from sin and to trust in Christ because of the resurrection. The resurrection is true, therefore judgment is coming, therefore repentance is necessary. Notice on your handout there, moving to the second point in verse 31. Because the resurrection is true, then judgment is certain. Because the resurrection is true, then judgment is certain. Why does God not overlook and why does He command repentance? Notice what it says there in verse 31. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. Notice there's a certain day there. What kind of day is it? It's a fixed day. God has a certain day when He will do what? He's going to judge the world. And who is He going to judge? All people, everywhere. And ignorance is no excuse. This is why it's so important that we, the church, the individual Christians, it's crucial that you and I proclaim the gospel. We hear that a lot. We need to be sharing the gospel with people. We talk on Wednesday nights and pray a lot about people, millions of people all over the world who are unreached for the gospel. We sit here today, and if I just went around the room and said, In your lifetime, how many times have you heard the name of Jesus? How many times have you heard the gospel? You would go, well, golly, I don't know. I've heard it thousands of times. you realize there are people in this world, millions of people, who have never heard the name of Jesus?
1: There's estimates
0: that there are 200 million people who live in the United States who have never heard the gospel. Is that hard for you to imagine? Living where we live, there are 200 million people in the good old USA who have never heard the name of Jesus. We proclaim the good news to all people everywhere so they can be saved from this fixed day. Why do we do that? Because God is not going to overlook when that day comes. Notice there's a standard there. There. God will judge the world in righteousness. God will judge by His righteous standard. He's not going to grade on the curve. How many of you in school, when you got your uh, midterm or your final exam back, one of the first questions you're hoping to ask is, are you going to grade on the curve? or are we going to get a Right? That's the first thing that comes to your mind. you look at your grade going, man, if He gives me five points, I'm in good shape. I go from a C to a B. That's what we're thinking, right? We're always thinking that. But God is not going to grade on the curve. His judgment is not just reserved for the bad guys. God will not grade based on what you perceive as being good. Instead, He grades and judges based on what? Righteousness. God's standard is His own character. His absolute righteousness. And what does God say in the book of Leviticus, in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1? I am holy, therefore you are to be holy. God commands us to be holy. He is going to judge in righteousness, and that judgment, that standard will be His His righteousness in which He judges us. Have you ever thought about how unbelievably a high standard that is? There are many people who think they live up to this standard. God's certain standard again is his righteousness. Unless you're not somehow satisfy that standard, when this fixed day comes, we're in trouble. Judgment's coming. And God says the bar is what? My righteousness. That's what you must attain. So on the day when Jesus returns, when that fixed day comes, I'm going to judge all people everywhere based on what? My holiness and who I am. Are you beginning to get the picture? God is going to judge you based on His holy character. But look at verse 31 again. Notice there's a certain man. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. When we think of judgment, as I've just taught there, we normally think of God, right? And not a man. But he says here, he will judge in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now at this point in time, we're we're going, who is the man? And most of us are going, I have a pretty good idea who this man is. If you look back to verse 18 of this same chapter, notice what it says there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, "Why? what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, even in that day they called preachers babblers. I don't feel so bad. is the eternal God who came down from heaven and He became a man. Jesus, the God-man, is the one to whom God has given all judgment. In the Gospel of John, listen to what Jesus, Jesus Himself has to say. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of God of man. So judgment is given to who? Jesus. Because he is the son of man. He's the representative of man. So Jesus will be the one who judges. And the judgment standard is what? His holy righteousness. You must meet that standard. And right now we should be thinking, there is no way I can meet that standard. And you'd be absolutely correct. Is the perfect standard for judgment because he lived a perfectly righteous life. And guess whose place he lived that life for? You. And he's the perfect judge because he knows the very thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Who better to judge us, right? Jesus knows every thought, everything about us, he knows our hearts. Every one of us, because of our sins stands guilty before God's righteous standard. Here's what I want you to understand don't miss the perfect life of Jesus. We sit here today and we understand the death of Jesus, right? He died to save us from our sins. But Jesus also lived for us. He lived perfectly in our place. See, Jesus could have been killed the day He was born. And His death would have atoned for sins, but He wouldn't have lived the perfect life in your place so that could be applied to your life. See, when you turn from your sin and you trust in God, when you trust in the work of Jesus and His death and resurrection, when you repent and believe, you know what God does? He takes the righteousness of Jesus and He puts it on your life. And so when He looks at your life, what does He see? He sees the standard has been met. The only one who lived perfectly is worthy to be this judge. Look at your handout. Let's move here to number three. Verse 31, the resurrection shows God's approval. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And of this refers to what has just been said. Notice he has given assurance to all of that. All of that's assured. It's guaranteed based on what? By rising Raising Him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus assures all that's going to take place. God gives assurance. Assurance has the idea of showing or granting proof. God who does not lie because He cannot lie, He grants proof of the certainty of judgment to all people everywhere, and He grants proof of the necessity to repent by raising Jesus from the dead. And here, is what I want to say. The main idea again. Because the resurrection is true, judgment is certain. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, it's certain. It's a fixed day. There's going to come a day of judgment. If judgment is certain, then what needs to happen? Repentance is necessary. God says, I can't overlook that. I can't overlook that. I'm commanding you to repent. Look at verses 32, 33, and 34. And we'll finish it up here. So we've seen this idea that because the resurrection is true, because God raised Jesus from the dead, He has fixed a day when He is going to judge in righteousness by a man, Jesus, who is the righteous one. So therefore, because of that fixed day, and because judgment is certain, you need to do what? Repent. Repent. Can I, can I say this? That word repent, as I said earlier, sounds kind of old-fashioned and out-of-date, right? In our day and time, it does. Some of you sitting here say, I don't like that word. Here's what I want to say to you. You need to be glad that word is in the Bible. God could have just left it out and just left you in your sin. He could have left us all there and we would have died and went to hell which we deserved. But notice here, there are some responses to the certainty of judgment. And the necessity to repent. Notice in verse 32. Some of these people mock. They, some of your translations have the word sneer. That's kind of what our culture does. They, they follow the beliefs of the culture. They mock this. They didn't believe in the possibility of a resurrection of the day. In other words, they, they rejected what God has said is that the thing that I'm assuring that I'm going to judge and have fixed that day on. Is that you today? Do you reject the resurrection? Do you reject the fact that God commands people everywhere to repent and trust in Christ and the work He's done to save you from your sins? Do you mock? Do you sneer? Do you see this response? What has been the command? Repent, Coming from God. Here's the standard. And by the way, because you couldn't meet the standard, I supplied my son who meets the standard for you. If you trust in him, the standard is met. But some people do what? They mock at that. They they sneer at that. But notice verse 32. Others procrastinate. Notice they said, we will hear you again about this. Not today, maybe some other time. You ever, you ever done that? I heard the gospel, he tell me how many times before God got a hold of my heart and I I turned from my sin and trusted in Christ. But there were there were times when I sat in days like today and in conversations with people, and I had the same thought. Not today, maybe some other time. But notice what happened. Paul went out from their midst. He left. They missed the opportunity to repent and believe. And here's what I'd urge you today. Don't procrastinate. Don't put off repenting and believing. Seeing how, you may not get another chance. Paul left. The witness of the Gospel was no longer there. Now, there could have been some other believers around who would have carried that work on, but I think the idea is that Paul went out from them because they said, maybe another time, Paul, not today. But notice verse 34. But some men joined him and what did they do? They believed. That's what some of you here today need to do. You need to join those who already believe. There are a lot of people sitting here today who believe, who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. You join by repenting and believing, trusting in the good news that through the death and resurrection of Christ, God offers forgiveness of sin. And the resurrection is what? The guarantee and the assurance and the approval that Jesus is the righteous one who meets that standard in your place. And there's no other way you can go but only to trust in Jesus. There's no other name... Give on earth among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way. Former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, revealed recently at the age of 72 that he was beginning to struggle or wrestle with mortality. I think when you kind of get in that age range, you begin to think about those things. However, he he believes there's no reason to fear death. And he points to all of his humanitarian efforts. If you know anything about Michael Bloomberg, if you research him a little bit, he is a humanitarian. He does all these good things to help people, which are good. But he thinks that those humanitarian efforts will gain him a right standing before God. Listen to what he says. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. My first thought is, God has no intention of interviewing you when you get to heaven. MSNBC and CBS are not going to be there. They're not going to care. They're not going to interview you. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. pretty arrogant statement, is it not? Some of you here today may not be as arrogant as he is about that, but you have the same thought. My good works and my good name will get me into heaven. Surely God will not keep me out. We can be free from the fear of death, not on the basis of our works, as Mr. Bloomberg assumes, but on the basis of Christ's work. The resurrection of Jesus offers us hope. It offers us eternal life. We're here today celebrating that day. This is a special day to celebrate the resurrection, which without you and I, we might as well just pack it all up and go home and just live out our days, because there's no hope for us. But let me assure you, Christian, this morning, here's something I want to assure you with. If you've placed your faith in Christ, Listen to the words of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus raised from the dead bodily one day. You and I, all of us in here in this room, are going to die one day in this life. But God promises those who know Jesus one day He will resurrect those bodies just like He did Jesus. And then we'll spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with Him. But listen, I can also tell you this. Those who don't know Christ, they'll be raised as well. But they'll spend eternity in a place the Bible refers to as hell. But Jesus gives the believer assurance, because I live, you also will live. And here's one nice thing I want to tell you. The church, there are a lot of ignorant people in the world. But God's not going to overlook that ignorance, is He? So what should be weighing heavy upon our hearts and our minds this morning as we're sitting? We know a lot of ignorant people, right? And God's not going to overlook that. So what must we do? We must pray, we must give, and we must tell. And there may even be some of you here in this congregation that one day God will move you to go to the ends of the earth to take the gospel. That should be our prayer. That's what I want to exhort you with today as a believer. You live, leave here. I live because Jesus lives. But there are ignorant people out there who don't know about Christ. I can give them hope today. And the resurrection gives me that authority to do that. Let's pray this morning.